I hope you noticed that's a little different phrase than you're used to hearing, isn't it? We normally say what at this time of the year? Mary. And we just leave it at that. But I want to take some time this morning to morph that a little bit. Kind of change that. And I want to talk to you about Mary christology Can we do that for a bit? Let's do that by putting a finger in two texts this morning. Luke 1.35 and John 1.14. Take your Bible and locate those two singular verses initially. And we'll unpack many scriptures today as we actually dive into a little bit of Christology, uh, the doctrine of Christ, specifically the incarnation. Now, understand that the incarnation, as David Platt says, and I agree, is the greatest miracle in the Bible. You say, well, how can that be, Todd? Aren't they all great? And how can one be ranked higher than the other? If you think about it, if there's no incarnation, which means that God came in the flesh and took on a human body. If there is no incarnation, there's no walking on the water. There's no feeding the 5,000. There's actually no resurrection. There's no crucifixion because all of those require a body, correct? And so if you back this truck up, you'll begin to realize, wow, the incarnation, when God took on flesh and became a man, it's the signal, the the, the greatest miracle. It kind of sparks the the, the bodily life of Christ. So we're going to look at that this morning because it really is a, a central aspect of what we do at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. In other words, the God man. And so I hope that when we're done today, you'll not just say Merry Christmas for the next two or three days in your normal way, but as you say it, you'll think Merry Christologimus, all right? Now, your fingers are in Luke 135, they're in John 114. Let me just give you some brief insight into what the word incarnation means, where it comes from, all right? Uh, the, The word comes from a Latin word, which means enfleshed. The Latin word for in is in, big surprise there. Uh, The the word for flesh is carnus, and so when we hear incarnation, what we're hearing is our English word for the Latin word meaning enfleshed. And in Christ's case, he's the one who from heaven, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became flesh. He took on mortality. He took on humanity. When we talk about the incarnation of Christ, we are referencing two things. One is specific and one is general. One means we're, t- we're talking about that moment when he was born and he became a man. We're also speaking of a general concept. And here's a $10 word for you, okay? Uh, in which humanity and deity existed in one body. That's called the hypostatic union in theological seminary circles. Just know this. It's the essential orthodox belief that in Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. Okay? That's an orthodox belief held universally by true biblical Christian churches, and we hold to that as well, that within Christ, the human man, the God-man known as Jesus, was 100% deity and 100% humanity. Two natures in one person. So those are kind of all referred to when we talk about the incarnation, the specific moment that he was born and took on flesh, but the larger doctrine of the hypostatic union, two natures in one. 
And we're not going to spend this morning discussing seminary words. I want us just to simply understand that is a belief that we hold to, and it's one that we celebrate at Christmas. And so we're going to look at that doctrine this morning, and we're going to conclude this at the end. Let me kind of show you the end destination, can I? That this thing we call the incarnation, it's not just a literary extra. It wasn't something the author threw into the story to give it a little more adventurous tone. It wasn't just something he made up so it could, you know, have a little higher, uh, uh, you know, uh, sense of like danger or something. It wasn't something just made up. It's an actual salvific essential. If there's not an incarnation, then we are not saved. I'll prove that to you this morning. That the incarnation is not just a literary extra. It's a salvific essential a necessary hope for every believer in life and death. And I hope this morning is that you will, for a few moments, enjoy some seasonal um, elements of this message. I also hope you'll enjoy some doctrinal elements of this message. And in the end, I hope you'll find that this is very practical. Because I think at Christmas, Easter, certain holidays, pastors have opportunities to be uniquely seasonal, deeply doctrinal and plainly practical in ways that perhaps you don't always have other times of the year. I think we want to be that every Sunday, to be honest with you. But at certain holidays, man, we have opportunities where those just meet in ways that we can just be plainly practical with the doctrine that is so essential. That's my goal this morning, that this will be where we end up, okay? So that's where we're headed. And the question really is not, do we believe this? Because we are a church that believes in the orthodox doctrine of the incarnation. You're going to see in these two texts that the Bible clearly states it. The inspired word of God spells it out for us in clear terms. The question I want to ask is, why was that necessary? Because perhaps you've asked this question to yourself. Okay, we believe the incarnation. We celebrate it at Christmas. God became a man. He took on flesh. But why? I mean, if he's God, couldn't he just like wave a wand, like the divine wand and and, and say, you're no longer sinners, you're saved. I mean, why go to the trouble of, of the conception, the delivery, the 33 years, the crucifixion? I mean, a lot of work. Couldn't God just figure out a different way? You ever ask yourself those questions? Why was this necessary? I want to answer that this morning for you. Let's start in Luke 135 by establishing the fact that truly deity did enter humanity. All right? These two verses will settle that for us as the Word of God will clearly speak to that issue. Now, as we work our way through this, be aware I suspect you'll have questions. If you do, please text them in. I'd like to hear those, especially in regards to tomorrow night, because tomorrow night, what I'd like to have with those who come to both of our Christmas Eve services. It's kind of like a Q&A conversation with you about your incarnation questions. Here's why. There are, I mean, a lot of topics lead to the gospel, and it's woven through the whole narrative, but the incarnation especially is a beautiful platform to talk about the gospel. Tomorrow night, we're just going to do that again, rehearse it to ourselves, preach it to ourselves, rejoice in it. But I'll admit to you, many people will come tomorrow night who may not understand the gospel, who may have never heard the gospel, Tomorrow night, we're going to take your questions about the incarnation as a way to just explain clearly the beautiful truth that Jesus died for sinners. So text them in. 
We'll answer them tomorrow night, okay? Here's what the Bible would say to us about the incarnation in factual form first, and then we'll see how it answers the why question. Luke 1.35, this is the angel visiting Mary before she gives birth, and the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, underline that phrase, and just note this, there's all of humanity in four words child who was born. So from the very moment that Christ entered the world, he did so through conception, birth canal, delivery, and he was a child. Luke 2 would tell us later this child grew in stature and favor with God and man. So he took on full humanity. But this child that was born, the Bible says, will be called, look at the end of the verse, Holy, the Son of God. Don't you find that intriguing that this child is actually holy and is referenced here as the second person of the Trinity? One and the same. Here are two natures in one person. Here's the fact of the incarnation. God became man. John 1.14 would echo the very same thing. Turn to your right just for a little bit. Notice this singular verse in John chapter 1. Here you'll notice that the Word, which is another title for the Son of God, he says, the Word became, say it with me, flesh. The idea of becoming human. And what did this Word that became, became flesh do? The Bible says it dwelt among us. The words there are to pitch your tent, to live, to tabernacle among us. And you're saying, well, Todd... Who is the Word, and what does He mean by that? Well, let's continue reading. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word that became flesh was actually the Son from the Father. But here's what's even more intriguing. This Word that took on flesh and lived among us, who was the Son from the Father, look back at verse 1. This was actually God. Look at verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when you realize verse 1 and verse 14 connect, that this Word who was God is the Word who took on flesh and lived among us, you again see in this text, deity, humanity, in one person, Jesus Christ. So the Bible... As the inspired Word of God, we hold and believe, teaches the incarnation of Christ. But why was that necessary? What are the, the reasons that that's required? Let me just walk you briefly through five of them. And then I want to show you why it's so plainly practical, okay? Here's the first reason that it was necessary for Christ to have a body. You might want to take these notes, maybe jot them down. Or just snap a shot of the screen behind me. I'll have them all listed for you. You can just kind of save them that way. But the first reason was that he would be our representative head. Now, this may sound confusing to you, but listen very carefully because it's actually quite simple. You already have one representative head. Did you know that? His name begins with A and it has four letters. Say it with me. Adam. And he is your representative head in regards to, watch this now, no offense meant, just just plain truth. He's your representative head in regards to disobedience. Did you know that? His sin, 
His fall has affected all of us. And so we are all born now with depravity. We're not as bad as we could be possibly, but we'll never be as good as we need to be because we have this inherent sin nature we've received from Adam. So we already have one representative head. That makes sense to us. Like, yeah, thanks, Adam. We appreciate this, right? So what does man need now? We need another, so to speak, Adam, another one like us, and yet one who is not like us, to be our representative head in regards to obedience. You see, the Father, God, requires perfect obedience. Adam didn't fulfill that. So we can't now. So what are we to do? We're to trust in the one who did. And his name was Jesus. He's the second Adam. In fact, he's the one whose actions of obedience, for all who believe in him, will be credited with his righteousness. And so if he didn't have a body, he couldn't be our second Adam. God didn't say, okay, here's the actual physical, literal first Adam through which all of you inherited your sin nature, but, you know, we'll just kind of have this imaginary friend, and we'll just kind of make up this idea of a, of a, of a man who will kind of be your ethereal second Adam. He didn't do that. He said, I'll give you an actual physical second Adam, so to speak, who will actually obey the law perfectly because he is holy, and he'll be your representative for obedience for all who believe in him. Here's how Romans 5 says it, much simpler than I explained just now. We're not surprised by that at all. Here's the Bible for us. Watch this. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you follow that? So Christ is your representative head in his physical, literal body. He's your second Adam who did what no one had done and no one can do, obeyed God perfectly and has now made the way for us to be reconciled to God. His obedience is credited to you when you believe in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that gracious of God? So just understand, we needed a physical, literal, bodily second Adam. That's why the incarnation is necessary, at least reason one. Let me give you two and three together. A body was necessary so that Christ could be our substitutionary sacrifice as well as our mediating high priest. Now these go together because I want you to understand something about how Israel operated and why Christ's body was necessary for both, all right? Watch this. In Israel's system, what was always needed was a sacrifice for the atonement of sin. No one ever brought an imaginary sacrifice to the altar. They didn't come with intentions. Are you with me? They came with actual items, such as a goat, a lamb, a bull, grain, pigeons. They would bring something to the altar. No one ever came empty-handed. And those offerings were always dealt with by a priest or a high priest. And so there was always this mediator. So in every case in Israel's history, to atone for their sins, there was the need of a sacrifice and a priest. Now watch this. In Israel's history, there were three kinds of people always intersecting there was the prophet the priest and the king and as Israel's history unfolded those were all fulfilled in Jesus who's the ultimate perfect prophet the ultimate perfect priest and the ultimate perfect king now now catch this when Jesus lived on the earth he was both the offerer as the high priest 
And he was both the offering as the lamb. And to have an offerer, you needed a physical body as the high priest, correct? But what did that high priest bring to the altar? Namely the cross. Did he just bring an imaginary idea? Did he bring intentions? No, he brought his own body. So we say it first time a lot of times during our communion times. We say that in communion we're remembering the offering and the offerer. Because Christ, as the high priest, stood in for us to God by offering his own self. And neither of those could have happened if he didn't have a literal physical body. He could not have been our high priest. He could not have been the offering. If you're tracking so far, just kind of nod with me, can you? These aren't real hard to understand, but sometimes we don't stop and think about why was the incarnation necessary? Because he had to fulfill every single promise in a literal, physical way, and he did by being the ultimate offerer and being the ultimate offering. By the way, when John, we read John 1.14, when this author saw Jesus in the beginning of his ministry, he said this and declared this, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He knew by the Holy Spirit's uh, insight and inspiration that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice Jesus even said about himself that he would be the one who would give his body to be the sacrifice. And, and so you find this to be so helpful that Jesus' body was a necessity so that he could be the priest who would offer himself as the payment for our sins. Let me show you how the Bible words it, okay? Here's the Bible in its own words about these two things. I'll give you three verses just to kind of follow with me here. Here's the one in Hebrews chapter 2. Surely it's not angels that he helps. In other words, he's not out to save angels. Amen? He's out to save the offspring of Abraham. In other words, humans, people. And so he had to be made like his brothers in every, in every respect. He didn't incarnate into an angel. He incarnated into a human because that's who he was paying the price of sin for. And so he did this. He was made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now watch this, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That just means a satisfactory offering. So he was the high priest who made the satisfactory offering. What was the offering he made as our high priest? First Peter tells us. Here's chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. So here's the offerer and the offering in bodily, literal, physical form doing what only he could do for us who, ha who really can't solve our own eternal dilemma. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy. Very few succinct, succinct words here, but sum it up so nicely. He's, Paul said, Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Watch these next four words. The, say it with me. Man. Christ Jesus. How does Paul here describe the mediating work of Christ Jesus as a man? 100% deity, he's Christ. 100% man, he's Jesus. And he's called the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. How did he mediate for us? He offered his body as the high priest. Now let me pause there and simply say this to everyone here. This being true, there is no other way to heaven, to God, apart from Jesus Christ. Can I just repeat this verse again for you? There is one God and there is 
one mediator. And so if you're not trusting the work of Christ on your behalf as your high priest to offer his own body for your sins on the tree, the cross, then you will not get to know God. You won't be reconciled to God because God sent Jesus to do that very thing. Be the high priest to offer his body for our sins. I know exclusivity and narrow-mindedness isn't really PC right now, but I would be unfaithful and derelict in my duties as a pastor to, to lead you in, a, in a, any, any other way. The Bible is clear. There is one way to be reconciled to God, and it's through the work of our high priest who in bodily form gave his body on the tree in literal time and space so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And remember, we have to have that because as a representative of Adam, we are by nature faulty and unable to do that. But Christ, through the virgin birth, bypassed the fallen nature of Adam and yet entered the human race as a fully human man. He qualifies as holy, the Son of God. And he stood in our place and paid our debt. Hallelujah, church. Amen. That could never have happened if Jesus didn't have a body. Reason number four why Christ had to have a body to be our ultimate example. See, I love the way that God the Father, when he sent Jesus, he was born, he lived. He modeled for us the, the way to live. I love the way that God the Father didn't just kind of put this in a list somewhere and say, hey, check the heavenly Google Drive. That's kind of what I'm after, you know. He didn't do that. He actually sent us a, a personification, a, a living, breathing example of, of what he's after. Here's how the scriptures would record this. Hebrews chapter 12. And I love there's three words that are common to both these scriptures. Look at this verse with me. Hebrews 12 says that we're to consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Read the next three with me. So that you. Do you get the implication there? Look at Jesus so that you can then emulate and follow and copy. Here's a verse, 1 Peter. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Read them with me. So that you might follow in his steps. So as you, as you see the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels, but then as in the epistles remembered and looked upon, we see that Christ's physical bodily life leaves us an example, a pattern. And it's not just another example. It is the ultimate perfect example. Now, I need to clarify something here. When we see the idea of Christ being our ultimate example in bodily form of how to live and obey the law and follow God, we tend to think about that in terms of things we should do that are good. And I'm not, I'm not faulting that, all right? I would agree with that. I think it's a short-sighted understanding, however. Because if you look at the texts in which we're encouraged to follow in his steps, the bulk of them speak of suffering and endurance. I think the Heavenly Father knew and he knows that that's when it's hardest to follow in his steps. He fed the poor. He helped the sick. 
we want to follow in those steps. And I think everyone here is saying, let's do that. But when we're wrong, I've got a better way, God. I want quicker vindication. I think I'll speak my peace now. It's difficult to endure wrongfully, isn't it? You can nod. It is. I struggle with this. Misinterpretation, misrepresentation. You want to correct things. You want to make sure no one thinks wrongly and then you want to get out from under things that are happening. You don't feel like you deserve but the bulk of the text about following our ultimate example really deal with suffering. So can I just exhort you as your pastor? Can I prod you and nudge you? Yes, continue to do good as Jesus did, but, continue, but perhaps begin to suffer well, to endure, yes, even hostility from sinners. I would remind you that no one here has or will endure to the extent that Jesus did. Who, after just three short years of ministry, was betrayed by every single friend, at least initially. Only a few faithful women, and perhaps John, from a distance, were there at the cross, remaining true. His own people betrayed him and made a trade for Barabbas. And gave him up for crucifixion. In the garden, they all left. The religious leaders of his nation conspired against him, arrested him, stripped him, and beat him. His flesh was no doubt hanging off of his bones, he was bloody. They put a crown of thorns on him. They mocked him. They spit on him. They tore his beard. They ripped his hair. While he was a bloody mess, they would throw a purple robe on him and then take it off again. And the cloth would stick to the open wounds and would rip even more. Then they would throw it on him again and they would mock him. Who are you, king of the Jews? As if that wasn't enough, he then was nailed to a cross. The bodily man, the physical man we know as Jesus, was nailed to a cross with nails in his wrists and his ankles. He was suspended naked in front of the world for three hours while he became sin for us. He was so, I'm going to use this word because we understand it, he was so lonely and betrayed that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ has known betrayal to an extent none of you or I will ever know. And after three hours of being made sin for us, he cries out, it is finished, and he actually dies. His body quit working. In the face of all of that suffering, Jesus trusted his Father. It's why he could pray in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. It's why he did not call down judgment immediately upon those who were crucifying him. Instead, he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
What is the model for us in our suffering? That we would trust the Father and not try to manipulate our circumstances. That's really what we mean when we say he's our ultimate example. We're speaking to the locus of this issue, and that is how well do we endure when we are wronged? There is but one example of that. That's perfect. It's Christ in his body during the crucifixion. The fifth reason that his body was necessary, the incarnation is required, is so that he could be our first fruits victor over death. So yes, Christ endured the cross, paid the price for our sins, but that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he arose by the power of the Father. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, That Christ has been raised from the dead. And by the way, notice Paul's words there. He calls this a what? A fact. (laughs) I love that, don't you? Often folks consider the theory of the resurrection or the myth of the resurrection, but it was verified by more than 500 people, historically in time and space, legibly documented. Paul knew full well it's a fact in any court of law. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead He now calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's an interesting way to talk about death, isn't it? Is Paul here teaching soul sleep? Is he saying that really we don't actually die? He's not saying that. The body does actually quit working, and the thing we know as our tent, this flesh, it does eventually quit. Christ's body did, but not forever. And so Paul knew That death to the body is not a forever thing for those who are in Christ. It's only temporary. And so that's why he said it's almost as if your body's kind of just falling asleep. He's not teaching soul sleep. He's just trying to bring forth an analogy that describes that bodily death is temporary. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead guaranteeing you'll be raised as well. This is great news, church. And so the verse concludes, as by a man came death. Who's that man again? Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Man, this is is the hallelujah moment. When we realize that when we close the lid on the casket, when we're standing by the hospice bed, when we are looking at our own mortality, When our our body or their body quits working, it is not the end for those in Christ. Because when Christ comes again, 1 Thessalonians 4 promises us that he will raise our bodies to be reunited with our spirit and soul. At that moment when Christ comes to the air, they'll be reunited and they'll be glorified and will forever be with the Lord in bodily form. But no longer with the body you got now. Hallelujah. Amen, church. I'm agreeing with that. But that body's glorified with no illness, no um, sickness. You won't get tired. You won't need to sit down, take a break. I can't wait for those days when you can serve the Lord with endless energy and passion in a body. Say, how do you know that, Todd? Because Christ's body was raised. And Jesus now is in heaven in bodily form, waiting to return in bodily form for his children. 
None of that could happen if long ago God had not decreed that Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, not descend, and I should say condescend to us in human form in a body. Five reasons a body was necessary. Five reasons the incarnation um, is required, we'll call it. I'll just sum them up for you again. So that he could be our representative head for obedience. He could be the physical, literal second Adam. He could be our substitutionary sacrifice, as well as the mediating high priest who offered the sacrifice. He could be our ultimate example, especially in suffering. And he could be our first fruits victor over death, ensuring and guaranteeing our bodies will be raised. Five simple reasons with scriptures, with scriptures to give you the why behind the what. Now, these simply help us again see our simple take-home truth, that the incarnation is not a literary extra. It is a salvific essential. It's a necessary hope for every believer in life and death. Now, I want to pause there, and I'll make this doctrine plainly practical. Because you're probably wondering, that's some good doctrines, what I expect in church. We study the Bible, I get that, but I'm leaving a little bit. Uh, where's the street leather application? It's a good question. Let's see if I can paint this picture for us as we wrap things up. The life of Christ and the death of Christ speaks to your life and death. Let's talk about life for a moment. When you face temptation, where do you look? Uh, someone else like you? Just with different faults? Maybe a little uh, further along on the better spectrum? No. Look to Jesus and how he dealt with temptation. We consider him. When you're lonely, you look to someone around you perhaps, they might help, but hey, let's look to Jesus who understood what it was like to be lonely. John 11, it says that he wept at the death of his friend. When you feel betrayed, do we look to one of someone around us or we look to Jesus? When we're facing anything in life, here, here's the thing. I want to nudge you and call your attention to look to Jesus and his life as the basis for living your life. He endured in every way what we go through. So often I think we, we, we tend to be short-sighted on who really we're following. If we're disciples of Christ, men, let's follow his example, his life, and let his life be our life. In every way, facing temptation, enduring suffering, finding meaning and worth in life, all of that is bound up in the life of Christ. He obeyed perfectly when I can't. I'm going to look to Jesus. He endured, he endured well when I don't. I'll look to Jesus. He resisted temptation when sometimes I give in. I'll look to Jesus. He's the model. He's the one. His life sets the stage and the pace for our life. But it's also true in death. When we look at our own mortality, when we see our own frailty, when we know that our days are numbered, barring the return of the Lord, we all will one day die. 
as that gradually creeps upon all of us, and you feel it more and more, let the hope of the resurrection come up under your feet. It is only temporary. Your spirit and soul will never die. Your body will. But for those in Christ, that's only temporary. It will be raised one day when Christ comes and reunite with your soul and spirit and you will have a glorified body. So in your death, his incarnation gives you hope. Let's look to Jesus again. So we look to Jesus in life and death. No wonder the, one of the original catechisms would say this, our only hope in life and death is God. And he showed how we're to operate that way when he became a man and took on mortal flesh to be at least these five things. I'm essentially asking you to let your life be swallowed up by Christ. And that's not an ethereal, imaginary, like, uh, you know, na 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 kind of picture here. I'm actually saying to you this morning, there is a bodily, physical life of Christ that spanned 33 years. Let your life on this earth, let your physical experience, let your unholy human experience be swallowed up by the holy experience, existence of physical Christ Jesus. I think this is maybe what Paul was pointing to in a set of verses that I find quite intriguing. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. I've been meditating on these this week. and I, I just want to maybe suggest that perhaps Paul is alluding here to letting our physical life be swallowed up by Christ's physical life. This may be one aspect he's getting at. Look what it says here. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So God's holding us. We're hidden in Him. This is union with Christ. We're intertwined, safe, and secure in Christ. And then he says this, when Christ, who is your what, church? Life. So, so much of our, our existence, if it's not really tied to Christ's life, just kind of becomes our life. And no wonder it's purposeless at times, faulty, short-sighted. But when we realize that our life is actually to be swallowed up by Christ's life, yes, his 33-year existence on the earth brings hope and meaning and foundation to our experience on this earth, then suddenly we, we begin to realize, oh, that's what it means for my life to be hidden in Christ. Everything I'll go through, he understands, he knows. Everything I experience, he's been there. And we keep our eyes on Jesus. You see, that deserves one thing from us. When we realize, oh, this is really the point of Christmas. The incarnation, the life, and I say that meaning the physical, bodily existence of a man named Jesus who was God. The incarnation demands a hallelujah from us. Because every bit of our life and death is built upon it. 
We can get through life, so to speak, because of Jesus. We can get through death because of Jesus. So do not look at Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Christ as just one of those days in which we remember a baby. We are remembering a fundamental doctrine that undergirds every bit of our faith, the incarnation of Christ. Oh, it's so essential. And with, without Christ leaving heaven, becoming a man, living perfectly to God's standard, dying for us and being raised, you and I would not be saved. He fulfilled all of God's promises, answered every single command, fulfilled every single prototype of prophet, priest, and king, satisfied every bit of God's requirements and wrath against sin. And now all who believe in Jesus are dressed in the righteousness of Christ and his life. I'm so glad Christ came in a body. Hallelujah for the incarnation of Christ. Will you pray with me, please? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.